Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, a place for interdisciplinary conversations in the broad world of business research. My name is Andrew Jennings, and it's my pleasure to be your host. If you like what you hear today, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Plus, leave a rating and let other people know about the show, too. And if you have ideas for the show, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. All right, time for the episode. Our guest today is Daniel Listlaw, a federal law clerk. We'll be discussing his article, Shareholder Lock-In and the Corporate Soul, Implications for the First Amendment, which was recently published in the Georgetown Law Journal online. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Dan, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. Dan, we're about 13 or so years past the Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United that unlocked a lot of controversy over the years in both the corporate law and the political worlds. To level set with the listeners and me, I wondered if you could remind us just what the Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United held and perhaps what some of the practical implications for that were. The Citizens United case addressed the question of whether a corporation or a union may use general treasury funds to pay for certain kinds of independent election spending in the period immediately before an election. So before Citizens United, the leading case on the constitutionality of corporate spending limits in candidate elections was a case called Austin v. Michigan Chamber of Commerce that was decided back in 1990. And in that case, the Supreme Court upheld corporate spending limits in candidate elections against a First Amendment challenge. The Austin court did so on the basis of what came to be known as the anti-distortion interest. This referred to the government's interest in curbing the, quote, corrosive and distorting effects of immense aggregations of wealth that are accumulated with the help of the corporate form and that have little or no connection to the public support for the corporation's political ideas. So in other words, the court in Austin recognized that corporations can be targeted for more burdensome campaign finance regulations because of concerns that their involvement could, quote, distort the political process. And in Citizens United, the Supreme Court overruled Austin and invalidated the portions of the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act of 2002, commonly known as the McCain-Feingold Act which limited corporations' ability to engage in independent election spending. And simplifying a bit, but when the court did that, it, among other things, undercut Austin's justification for singling out corporations for more burdensome campaign finance regulation by holding that corporations were, quote, associations of citizens entitled to the same First Amendment protections as those associations that do not take a corporate form. The opinion's pretty long, and its reasoning rests on other conclusions as well, but it's that associations of citizens aspect of the opinion that generated a lot of controversy and that I'm going to be focusing. This has been a controversial decision, to say the least. What criticisms have been leveled against the decision over the years, and from what corners have those criticisms typically come? The Citizens United decision attracted immense amount of attention in the period right after it was handed down, perhaps most famously when then-President Obama criticized the decision during his State of the Union, saying that it would open the floodgates for special interests to spend 
in an unlimited fashion in the election. And that concern, which you heard a lot of right after the decision came out, was one that Justice Stevens brought out in his dissent when he really raised the specter that corporate spending would drown out the voices of everyday Americans, basically that the ruling would expand the political influence of corporations and special interest groups. And that's a criticism that you continued to hear in the years that followed. I think that if you ask an election law expert what it is about the decision that gives rise to these types of concerns, the answer you would get would focus on the way that Citizens United narrowed what constitutes corruption, which isn't really a part of the decision that I described when I was summarizing it just a moment ago. And in narrowing it, really limited Congress's ability to regulate independent expenditures. But that limiting of the definition of corruption wasn't quite the focus of the public discourse about the decision in its immediate aftermath. Instead, there is a real focus on this idea that the court had decided that corporations are persons for purposes of the First Amendment, and as such are entitled to the same rights as human persons in connection to political speech. Now, there's a real debate to be had as to the extent to which the Citizens United decision rested on ideas of corporate personhood, but it's certainly the case that one of the most dramatic reactions to the court's Citizens United decision was this launch of popular movement, really, to strip corporations of their status as persons under law and thereby eliminate corporations standing to claim constitutional rights. A goal of that movement was a constitutional amendment targeted at corporate personhood. And essentially every year to this day, members of Congress continue to propose constitutional amendments intended to draw distinctions between natural persons and corporations. So those are some of the broad criticisms and concerns that emanate from this decision. And of course, this is the Business Scholarship Podcast, and this article is about corporate law and Citizens United. So I wanted to maybe center the rest of the discussion on some of the corporate law aspects of this decision around corporate political spending. What have corporate law scholars said as they've weighed in on the Citizens United treatment of corporations? There are folks who aren't probably typically focused on issues of corruption or democracy writ large. They're focused on the corporate domain, but uh, this does intersect with their area of expertise. So what have a corporate law scholar said in response to perhaps the coherence of this decision? To answer that question, I think it's helpful to take a step back. Business entities, including corporations, frequently appear before the Supreme Court as parties in major cases implicating important rights. Citizens United is an example of that, but so is Hobby Lobby, the 2014 case in which the court recognized a for-profit corporation's claim of religious belief. Another example would be Masterpiece Cake Shop, a case from 2018 involving the free exercise clause, in which, again, the petitioner was a corporation. And just this past term, we had 303 Creative, a case raising similar issues to Masterpiece Cake Shop, in which the named petitioner was a limited liability company. In each of these cases, the Supreme Court has some theory, whether it's explicit or whether it's more implicit, about the nature of these business entities that underlies its decision. And notably, these theories can change from case to case. There's not really that strong element of consistency. 
This is a phenomenon that Professor Adam Winkler documents in his excellent book, We the Corporations. There he discusses how, in cases going back to the 19th century, the Supreme Court has flip-flopped on its characterization of corporations, sometimes treating them as associations of individuals and entitled to assert those individuals' rights, as the court did in Citizens United, but other times treating the corporation as legal persons distinct from their rights-bearing members. The problem is that generally in these cases, the Supreme Court does not engage deeply with questions about the nature and structure of the business and entities involved. This is a point made, for example, in a recent article by Professor Jonathan Macy at the Yale Law School and former Chief Justice of the Delaware Supreme Court, Leo Strine. Macy and Strine criticized the Citizens United Majority's conception of the corporation as an association of citizens, as bad corporate law, explaining that it overlooks the fact that, as a matter of state corporate law, a corporation is an artificial legal construct that exists separate and apart from its investors, a separateness that manifests itself most notably through limited liability. In that sense, they argue that the court confused corporations with general partnerships, which lack that formal separation between the entity and its owners. And this is an idea that has come up occasionally in, for example, amicus briefs submitted to the court. There is a corporate law scholar's amicus brief submitted in the Masterpiece Cake Shop case that raised very similar points, saying that you have this separation that manifests itself primarily in the form of limited liability. And that separation should matter when it comes to discussing constitutional rights. This is the idea that I take as the jumping off point from my article, Shareholder Lock-In and the Corporate Soul, because it calls into focus an interesting and I think underappreciated issue, which is when and how we should distinguish different types of organizational forms, whether it's a corporation or a general partnership or something else, when we are talking about First Amendment rights. In this article, you propose a functional test that might help courts or help the Supreme Court perhaps in distinguishing corporations from other types of organizational forms that might help address this association versus entity theory. Could you tell us about that, this functional test that you propose? Sure. Looking again at Macy and Schrein's article, or for that matter, the amicus brief I mentioned before, a key plank of this argument for differential treatment of the corporation from the natural person is an appeal to essentially corporate ontology. That is, whether a particular type of firm is treated under state law as an entity distinct from its investors. There's a lot of logic to this sort of thinking. It's the way that we think about corporations and different entities when we're in the corporate law mode. But it also brings to mind a point John Dewey made some hundred years ago in his seminal article on corporate legal personality. when. He said that when discussing corporate rights, we should be focused not on ontological line drawing, not on formal distinctions about separateness, but rather by attending more pragmatically to the functional differences between the different types of entities. In my article, I try to do just that, offering what I think is a more functionalist account of what distinguishes different types of business organizations from a First Amendment perspective, focusing in particular 
on the distinction between corporations and general partnerships, largely because those two essentially operate as the different ends on a spectrum. And what I come up with as the key distinguishing feature is something called liquidation protection, which is this other feature associated with corporations that is quite underappreciated in my view. This concept of shareholder lock-in and liquidation protection is really core to the functional test you propose. So can you give us some more background on just what liquidation protection is as one of the essential attributes of the corporation? Let's start by thinking about the general partnership. As a matter of state law, a partner in a general partnership can, at will, exercise her right to walk away from the organization with her share of its value even if doing so requires liquidating the partnership's assets. This feature essentially grants each partner a powerful veto right over the firm's actions, because if a partner doesn't like an action proposed by the other partners, she can credibly threaten to walk away and in the process liquidate the firm. Corporations, on the other hand, are endowed with what I've been referring to as liquidation protection, meaning that once a person makes a financial contribution to the corporation, and becomes a shareholder, she can't unilaterally withdraw her capital. Instead, the shareholder must either find a buyer willing to pay the full price for her shares, persuade the company's board of directors to repurchase her shares, or under very limited circumstances defined by state law, petition the court for relief. So in contrast to the members of a general partnership, the shareholder in a corporation is effectively locked in to that entity. My proposal is that the presence or absence of this lock-in feature is what matters in the constitutional context, with only those organizations that don't lock in their members being entitled to treatment as an association of citizens for purposes of the First Amendment. I arrive at this conclusion in two ways. First, if you look at the way people discussed corporations around the time of the founding, one of the themes you'll notice is this concern that corporations act purely for the purpose of increasing wealth, unconstrained by personal morality. There's this real fear that corporations are in the hands of many and as such will go unchecked by any individual's sense of principle or personal responsibility. Now, setting aside questions about whether shareholder maximization is required by state law, there's nothing about a corporation that inherently prevents it from undertaking any purpose other than the unrestrained pursuit of wealth. But the framers were correct in their sense that corporations, as opposed to partnerships, are less likely to be so constrained. And that reason is liquidation protection. As I already noted, a general partner can use the right to demand unilateral payout as a veto to prevent the partnership from pursuing ends that he or she disagrees with. But the typical shareholder doesn't have that kind of veto. Instead, to make their voice heard, shareholders must rely on the limited tools of corporate democracy provided by the corporation's charters, primarily the election of directors. As some scholars have observed, these shareholder control structures work well for ensuring that the corporation pursues ends that all the shareholders agree on, such as maximizing residual value, but they are typically less effective at aggregating heterogeneous preferences 
Thus, because shareholders are generally likely to have varying politics, there's reason to doubt that a corporation's actions in the political sphere will always reflect the views of its shareholders. That's the first point. An organization with liquidation protection is less likely to act in a manner that reflects the views and preferences of its investors when it comes to politics. My second point is, in some sense, more direct. Recall that the Citizens United majority characterized the corporation as a voluntary association of its owners. But in a very literal sense, this is not true. Again, when someone contributes to a partnership, she can unilaterally and at will walk away from the partnership with her share of the entity's assets. The general partner can essentially freely disassociate from the firm. Now, there's some complications associated with contract law, but focusing in on the state law structuring the partnership itself, that's pretty much how it works. But a shareholder in a corporation can't do that. She's locked in. This means that in contrast to a partnership, a corporation once formed essentially ceases to be a voluntary association. In this regard, the core intuition underlying the court's reasoning at Citizens United falls away. It's helpful, I think, to look at Justice Scalia's concurrence in this regard, where he wrote that a business corporation is no different from the Republican or Democratic Party. But that's just not true. If a member of a political party disagrees with a decision by party leadership, that member is free to renounce her membership and disassociate with the organization. Indeed, as we've recently seen, even a member of Congress elected on a specific party ticket can become independent or switch parties while in office in the middle of a term. But a shareholder can't do that. She has no legal right to disassociate from the firm freely. So that's my second point. An organization that locks in its investors is simply not a voluntary association because its members lack the right to freely disassociate. How do we apply this functional test and your perspectives here to other forms of business entities? We've talked about general partnerships. We've talked about corporations. Of course, today, if a business entity is being formed, it's far more likely to be a limited liability company, an LLC, than it is to be either a corporation or certainly a general partnership. How does this functional test apply to some of the other alternative business entities that have really taken hold at different levels of our economy in the United States? So under my view, the way to think about any particular kind of organizational form is going to depend on what rights are afforded to its investors as a matter of state law, and more particularly, whether that state law provides liquidation protection. To take, for example, the limited partnership, under the Uniform Limited Partnership Act, which many states have adopted, a limited partner may withdraw from the partnership as long as the limited partnership has notice to figure out exactly the degree to which there's liquidation protection. You'd have to look at how the courts in any particular state enforce this notice requirement. But the general structure of allowing withdrawal so long as there's notice suggests that the partners have a sufficient right to disassociate freely so as to consider the organization an association of its investors for purposes of the First Amendment. Now, I'm not saying that's the only consideration you'd want to be looking at, but I think it's a particularly salient one. 
Now, in some cases, courts may need to make a more individualized analysis of the entity in question. In particular, you mentioned limited liability companies, LLCs. And LLCs are very customizable as a matter of state law. Delaware in particular, the when you form a LLC, you can customize the duties that are associated with the various officers, the type of officers that are involved. And I think as a result, their constitutional treatment would likely depend on a pretty individualized analysis of the dissolution rights granted to the interest holders. So that's the general idea. When you're looking at a particular business organization that's the plaintiff or defendant or petitioner in a particular case, you're going to need to take a close look at the rights afforded to its members under state law. In particular, when you're talking about the First Amendment, is this a real association? And when you're asking, is this a real association, you should be saying, can its members freely disassociate? Is there that liquidation protection? What key takeaways would you like readers to have from this article or listeners to have from this interview? I think that the first takeaway is that it simply isn't correct to say that a corporation is an association of its investors. By taking the form of a corporation, the shareholders lose their right to disassociate freely. And that should matter for how we think about their constitutional rights. At the same time, I'm not suggesting that laws governing corporate conduct never burden the rights of natural persons in a way that is constitutionally salient. But that's different from treating the entity as an association of people entitled to assert those individual rights. And I think that we should be careful in drawing those types of distinctions. Now, taking a step back, another takeaway in my mind is that in cases where some sort of legal entity is a party, whether it's a for-profit corporation in Hobby Lobby or a masterpiece cake shop or an LC in 303 Creative, courts should be attending carefully to the state law structuring the firms and the rights of those who are associated with them. And it should do so, in my view, in a functionally-minded way. It isn't enough to say state law treats these as separate for certain purposes, so we should be treating them as separate for First Amendment purposes. There's no magic to limited liability, for example. Instead, the court should be looking at the particular ways in which the entity is separated from the underlying rights bearers and ask what that separation implies. And in my view, given the shareholder lock-in we've been discussing today, if the court had done that sort of deeper inquiry in Citizens United, I don't think it would have likened a corporation to a free association of its investors. And that same point carries over to the reform efforts that have arisen in response to the Citizens United decision and that continue to this day. As I mentioned before, there have been numerous proposed amendments in recent years intended to address the holding in Citizens United. Many of these proposals refer broadly to artificial entities, which in my mind, is a pretty vague term that could sweep in all sorts of different types of firms. It would be better, in my view, to draft these amendments to refer directly to the features of certain organizational forms that create issues from a constitutional perspective. So when we're talking about First Amendment rights, a central point of that consideration should be liquidation protection. 
I think that by attending more carefully to the particular features provided by state law, we're going to have, whether it's amendments or court decisions, but we're going to have law that more cogently and clearly deals with the business organizations that are coming before the courts. Our guest today has been Daniel Listois, a federal law clerk. We've discussed his new article, Shareholder Lock-In and the Corporate Soul, Implications for the First Amendment, which was recently published in the Georgetown Law Journal online. I'll link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Dan, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks very much for having me. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard today, be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, rate the show, and let other people know about it too. If you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.